All right, let's find our seats this morning. I also just want to give glory to God and praise to Modesto and Jessica. You guys did a great job last week. Uh, we really want to support our teens, our youth, and I'm so excited about them going on the retreat this week. That was something that was such a big part of my life for over a decade. And so uh, me not going is like, there's a little bit of like, ah, I want to go too. I want to go with you. I'm, I'm sure you do. <laughs> it's a, it's a, there's not enough, not enough room in the vehicle. Yes. Yes, we are getting a vehicle. We're praying in faith. Lord, you would give us a vehicle for next week. All right, let's pray. Let's begin together in prayer. Um, let's pray together Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky shows his handiwork. Day to day they speak, night to night they reveal. There is no speech, no words, where their voice goes unheard. Their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his bridal chamber. It's like a strong man rejoicing to run his course. It rises at the one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Adonai is trustworthy, making the simple wise. The precepts of Adonai are right, giving joy to the heart. The mitzvot of Adonai are pure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Adonai are true and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, more than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Cleanse me of hidden faults. Also keep your servant from willful sins. May they not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless, free from great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable before you, Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. I'm going to continue on this morning in my series on relational presence. We're going to be in the book of, starting in the book of Leviticus. If you want to go there, you can just go to the very first chapter of Leviticus today. Um, this series of messages that I'm giving is outlined in a, in a really great book. Um, this is a book that was published about five years ago, and it's also called God's Relational Presence. This book right here. Okay, It's a book by Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes. Highly recommend this book, because um, it goes into a lot more depth than what I've been covering in these messages. Um, so I have an extra copy here, and uh, if there's somebody here who... Would is interested in really studying this, like, I'm not just going to give it away so you can put it on your shelf, like, maybe I'll get to it someday, but if there's somebody here who's like, yes, I want to read and study through this with you as we go through these messages, I'm, I'll give it away to you, so you can get with me afterwards, I'm going to set it right here, and uh, you can come, and I have an extra copy, so um, it's a great, really great book, um, just walking through scripture about how God is made his relational presence known to his people and to us today. So, what have we covered so far? Right? We've gone through 
three messages on this. One was just an introduction. One was um, covering Genesis, and the other, the last one was covering the book of Exodus, okay? And we talked about how the primary theme of Exodus, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about how God's, the primary theme is God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people Israel, okay? So if you think about what happened in Exodus, right, the theme around all of it, what was happening was his presence dwelling in the midst of his people. He was taking them out of the land, and he was helping them organize, right? Setting, they came to Mount Sinai, and he, and they, and he was giving them instructions and helping them to set, set up the tabernacle where he could dwell in their midst. That was the whole theme of the book. And, and in doing so, God revealed his glory in a way, what we called it, not seen in Genesis, right? In Genesis, he revealed himself maybe as in the form of a human, right? Or through dreams. And in, in Exodus, he's revealing his glory in a new way, through flame and fire and earthquake and smoke and clouds. And in, in all of this, though, he uses the same terminology as he's talking. He's consistent in the way he talks, in the way he communicates, God does, from Genesis to Exodus. And he uses a really important phrase, a covenant phrase, really, that says, I will be with you. He's using that in both of those books. Okay, so he says, I will be with you, this covenant phrase, and it's really important. I want us to keep that in mind because he uses that over and over again. We also learn that in Exodus that being on the opposite side of God's presence is terrifying. Okay, and the Egyptians experienced this firsthand. So those are some of the things we learned. We talked again about the dwelling place. I don't know if you remember the Hebrew word we talked about for the tabernacle. It was, anyone remember? Mishkan? Mishkan, right? Yes? And, uh, and we, we talked about that. And we also talked about how God, in setting up his dwelling, he's beginning to restore relationship, right? Restoring relationship that was lost in Genesis chapter 3. We, we talked about God's holiness is dangerous. We broached on that a little bit and how there's holiness boundaries that are required in order to come to worship him. And the last thing that we covered last time was about the golden calf. Okay, we talked about that. And how you, can't, you can't ignore that, right, in the book of Exodus, the golden calf, and how it's a huge, blatant violation of Torah, of the commandments. You know, we talked about how the people wanted boring, safety, not, not some powerful but dangerous holiness. And, and in this whole golden calf incident, Moses interceded. He intercedes, and, and God said, though, instead of destroying the people, he said he, that they will go without his presence. And we understand that that is the most serious punishment, is that to live without God's presence live outside of his presence. And Moses intercedes again. God says he will go with them. And here we land now in the book of Leviticus, where we're going to start today. And we're actually going to cover two books of Torah today. We're going to go through Leviticus and Numbers today. So it's going to be kind of a whirlwind, run through it. But we're going to see how God makes his relational presence known in both of these books. So geographically speaking and chronologically speaking, if we kind of look at a high level, thinking about Leviticus and Numbers, right? Exodus ends, they're at Mount Sinai. 
Leviticus picks up right there. They're still at Mount Sinai. They're actually at Mount Sinai for how long? And me remember how long in total they're at Mount Sinai? Yeah, they're there for a, at least a year, right? At a minimum of a year, right? And in, so they, they leave Mount Sinai in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 10 is when they leave Mount Sinai. So if you think about when they arrive at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, what was that, around chapter 19? Um, and it's, if you're th- thinking about going through Scripture, all of Leviticus and then into Numbers, Numbers chapter 10 is when they leave Mount Sinai. And they, in the next several chapters of Numbers, they journey towards the Promised Land, and by late in the book of Numbers, they've arrived nearby. Okay? They're almost ready to enter the Promised Land. They're almost ready to cross the Jordan River. And they're 40 years removed from Egypt at that point in time. So we're just talking about really high-level stuff here, kind of about the summary of what we see in Leviticus and Numbers. And then what we always see throughout Leviticus and throughout Numbers, we're going to continue to see this, we're going to highlight this today, is that the presence of God is closely associated with His holiness. This is a theme throughout, that the presence of God is closely associated with, with His holiness, and that God's presence, it literally radiates holiness. It's, it, it's, it's a, it's a, we talked about, you know, the spatial presence of God, right? It's, it's real. It's not just figurative. And it, and it radiates holiness. You can't approach him in, in, a, in uncleanness. So there's a lot of theme about that going through both Leviticus and Numbers. We learned in Exodus that God, in his dangerous holiness, in, this, in that presence, he dwells in the tabernacle among his people. He gave them rules, right, to approach his, his nearness. And those rules included sacrifice. Okay, and, that's, and sacrifice, if we could say, I mean, this is, of course, this is really a broad brush, and it's not, like, fully true, but, like, the, the general message of Leviticus is about sacrifice. Okay? The general message of Leviticus is about it. So at a high level, we could probably break up Leviticus into two sections, okay? Uh, The first, uh, like 1 through 16, um, you would say Leviticus is about the sacrificial system, okay? It's implementing the sacrificial system, implementing the Levitical priesthood. Then the rest of the book, 17 through 27, we're talking about how Leviticus is about requirements for holiness in the nation, Okay, so you get setting it all up, and then here's your requirements for holiness, is what the, that, that book is about. So we're going to start with sacrifice, though, today. So my question for you, and this is for you to answer, when you think of sacrifice, what comes to your mind? Passover? Okay, what else? Animals? Okay. Temple? Giving? Redemption, fire, blood, anything else? Atonement, thank you, atonement, that's good. Death, anyone? Yeah, there's some, there's death involved, right? Mm-hmm, there is. All right, so let's go to Leviticus chapter 1. We're just going to read the first three verses together here. Open your Bibles up. <clears throat> you don't have to read with me. Read with me silently, I should say. You might have a different version than me. That would be awkward if we're all trying to 
<laughs> Read it together, different versions. But chapter 1, verse 1, Now Adonai called to Moses and spoke to him out of the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them, When anyone brings of you, any one of you brings an offering to Adonai, you may present your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Okay? Just going to talk about that real quick. And then I'll, I'll read the, I'll read the, uh, the next verse too. If his, if his sacrifice is a burnt offering from his herd, he is to present a male without blemish. He is to offer it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted before the Lord. Okay? There's a lot more detail even in that first chapter talking about offerings and offerings without defect. Okay? But I want to do, your, do a little Hebrew word lesson for the day. Okay? So last time we talked about words like mishkan about, with regard to the temple. Okay? Um, today... Um, we, we're going to talk about the word karab, okay? Everybody say karab, okay? And so if you want to like spell this out phonetically, it's like Q-A-R-A-B, karab, okay? Um, like kind of like Qatar or Qatar, only it's karab, right? It's Q, it's a Q word. And uh, four times in verse two, we see that word in Hebrew. And three times in verse 3, we see that word, or, or derivative of that word. Um, so karab, in Hebrew, means to draw near. It means to draw near, okay? And the there, is, there is a derivative of that word that's used a lot, and it's karban. Karban. And that means it's talking about that which is brought near. So karba is like you could draw near, and what you're bringing is karban, that which is that which is brought near. Okay, that, if you can think about those words. So, so you would usually think of karban as your offering, right? Because you're bringing it near to God. We also see another word in here that says it's lipne Adonai. I've talked about that in two of my previous messages because it means before the Lord, and you're bringing this before the Lord. At the very end of verse 3, it talks about that, before the Lord. You're bringing, he may be accepted before the Lord. This is about your offering, and you bringing your offering before the Lord. So these, these are words that occur a lot in Leviticus and a lot in Numbers. And, um, karba is, uh, incurs 102 times in Leviticus. We see karab. And we see karban 80 times in Leviticus. And we see lipne adonai over 60 times in Leviticus and over 30 times in Numbers. So this idea of drawing near to the Lord, bringing an offering to the Lord, and coming, as again, before the Lord, this is a, a heavy theme. So general theme for this area uh, of Leviticus and Numbers is that we are bringing an offering before the Lord. That's your general theme of what's happening here in this area of Scripture. We're drawing near to God. Now, some of you guys might have heard this word karban, and it might have rung a bell to you if you've read in the Gospels. Mark chapter 7. How many of you guys connected that in your head? Or thinking about something that was 
said as carbon or korban. Mark chapter 7, verses ni- verse 19. I think I got the right one there. Maybe I didn't get that one. Maybe I, let me see. Oh, I was in Matthew. That was why. That would be why it didn't look right to me. I gotta go to the right book. Mark chapter seven, <clears throat> verse nine. He says, "He was also telling them." This is Yeshua talking to some of the religious leaders. You set aside the commands of God in order that you may have that you may validate your own tradition. For Moses said, "Honor your father and your mother." And he who speaks evil of his father, father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever you might have gained from me is carbon, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, making void the word of God with your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many, th- many such things. So you see that word there. Yeshua is using that word. And so... It was used in regard to the sacrificial system or the offering system in the temple in Yeshua's day, sometimes in a way that God is not pleased with, right? So we have to be considerate of what we set aside for God, right? And how we are following God's commands in that way and whether or not we're doing commands of taking care of our our parents, honoring our father and mother and not just saying, well, that one's set aside for God, right? Um, that was kind of what he was talking about there. So there's your Hebrew word lesson for today. Now, I'm going to kind of pivot to the side here and I'll tell you a story. So I um, had a Bible professor in college. Um, his name was Dudley Chancy. So Professor Dudley Chancy. Um, two things I will always remember about Professor Dudley Chancy. The first thing I remember is that he always wore, at least outside of class, an orange Tennessee Vols ball cap, like all the time, <laughs> okay? Um, and uh, the second thing is that every day he ended class with the exact same words when we were leaving. He said, be holy because I am holy. Now, he wasn't talking about himself, right? <laughs> He was talking about God. This is a command that we see throughout Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. Now, I can forgive him for being a Vols fan, but his daily reminder of the be holy because I am holy, it was so genuine. It was, it was so strong. Like, he, he loved us so much as, as his students, and he was just implor- imploring of us to be holy because God is holy. He, he wanted that of us as his students. He was loving us, encouraging us. And again, this, this phrase, be holy because I am holy, is, is found repeatedly in Leviticus. And, and oftentimes we see this when God is making distinctions between what's clean and what's unclean. He's helping Israel know what's clean and what's unclean. And he says, says be holy because I am holy. And, and so I want to go to Leviticus chapter 9 with me because we see more examples of this as the priests begin their ministry. This idea of being holy because I am holy. Now, in Leviticus 9, Aaron and his sons... They're beginning their ministry. Um, they're cleansed 
for God's instruction, and then they offered sacrifices as God's command. And in verse 23, at the end of the chapter, we see something really cool. Again, this, isn't, this doesn't say, be holy because I am holy, but we're seeing God's holiness. We're seeing his glory on display. In verse 23, it says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting, and when they came back out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and devoured the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You guys ever pictured this before in your mind about what that was like? Like to have the assembly of Israel around the tent of meeting and this fire devouring the, the all, all the sacrifice on the altar that just came out from God's presence. That his glory is so powerful that it caused them to shout like they're just taken away, right? Like, oh, you know, can't handle it. And they're shouting like, oh my gosh. Like, and then they, and they fall on their faces. Like this is glory to God. So much in awe of God. His awesomeness deserves, we use this word awesome, right? Awe, this awe of God is so powerful. They just can't handle it and they fall on their faces. They see his holiness. His glory before them. And then we see again <clears throat> God's dangerous holiness. In the very next chapter, Leviticus 10, we see the holiness on display. Then we see two of Aaron's sons. We see Nadab and Abihu. They approach God in a way that is not according to his instruction. And in their unholy state, they are consumed by God's holiness by the fire of his holiness as they are approaching God. They were not being holy as he was holy. They brought unholy fire to God and it consumed them as they were attempting to approach God. Now, Leviticus gives us significant instruction about approaching God. And in fact, the primary times it talks about approaching God are in Leviticus 23, right? Um, these are the biblical free feasts that are outlined. And, and God gave these in Leviticus 23 in order, starting with the weekly Shabbat, the first and most frequent of his holy days, followed by listing the feasts in chronological order. So kids, teens, question for you. Can one of you... Tell me what those are in order. The seven? What's that? The feasts. Yeah. Any idea? You're drawing a blank? What's, what's the first one? Before that? Passover. So that's Passover, and then you said it. Unleavened bread, first fruits, Shavuot. Okay, good. You got the first four. Then you got trumpets. Hey, nice job. Naomi gets the prize. Good job, Naomi. All right, that's all outlined in Leviticus 23. Now, the priests, you know, they offered daily sacrifices, 
They offered sacrifices on the new moon and, and such. But during these feasts that are outlined in Leviticus 23, they would offer more sacrifices during these days than any other time. In fact, Sukkot had more than four times the number of sacrifices than all of the other feasts combined. More than four times than all of the other feasts combined. That's why, okay, so there's 189 sacrifices, just in case you're wondering, on Sukkot. There's 42, and there are other six feasts total, and there's 189 in Sukkot. Um, so this is, this is why I think by Paul, he, he just talks about it as the feast, right? In, in, Acts, in the book of Acts 29, he, he's, it was just a huge feast, right? It's so big. That's why people just call it the feast. It was the feast. I mean, there's so much sacrificing going on, so much food shared around. It was the feast, right? But the feast followed the day. The most holy day, right? Sukkot was a feast following shortly behind the day, the most holy day, which was what again? Day of Atonement, right? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is given in a lot more detail in Leviticus chapter 16. And when we think about the Day of Atonement, and I'm not going to go through all of the the uh, requirements for it in Leviticus 16, but when we think about it, and we think about how God has given requirements for cleanliness, and God has given requirements for holiness in approaching him, and we understand how dangerous God's holiness is when approach, approaching God inappropriately. So we think about examples like Nadab and Abihu, right? What happened to them? Okay, now you get to the Day of Atonement, you get to Yom Kippur, and this is when you're all in with your chips. This is your cranking the volume to 11 on God's holiness, and you're approaching God's holiness now on this day because you have the closest you get to God here in his spatial presence on the Day of Atonement. You have the, the very closest, because this is the only day of the year that the high priest would go beyond the veil. The only day. The one time. that The veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. This side of heaven, there is no other higher level of God's presence that could be approached physically. There. To go that close. This is as close to God's presence as someone could get. To be there in front of the ark. And the glory of God there. And so the, the high priest had to go through so much cleansing, right? Before he could even begin to approach God's holiness on that day and bring the blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat on that day. And I hope that we have then this understanding then of Yeshua, this appreciation of Yeshua even greater for his perfection who in his holiness as our great high priest entered the holy of holies once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having to take eternal redemption. It says in Hebrews 9.12, I want us to really connect these two things together about God's holiness and his presence. 
and what Yeshua has done for us, what Jesus has done for us in his perfection, that he doesn't go, have to go year after year. But he's made this sacrifice once and for all. Allowing us then to have that close access to the Father. We talk, I talk about how this is as close as this side of heaven, right? To the physical proximity. But now we have access to the Father that even the high priest had then. Because Yeshua has invited us to come to him now. By his blood. He is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who cleanses us, who gives us that ability to be cleansed in order to approach God's holiness when we accept his cleansing. So if, if I just end my message right there, you guys need to understand that at a minimum. That, that is some good news gospel message you, you all need to know. Okay, But when Yeshua did this, he did this in his new covenant. Right? And and we should connect that to the fact that all that the people and the priests did in following God's instructions around the tabernacle, they were in keeping with God's covenant at that time. He gave them this covenant. And in doing so, in Leviticus 26, if you go to Leviticus 26, you'll see how God says that those who keep his covenant would be blessed with him, by him. Faithfulness ensures blessings starts in that, in that parsha, starting in Leviticus 26.3. It talks about how he will bring peace into the land, that five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred will chase ten thousand. And I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. And so on and so on. He's going to be with you. I will walk with you and be your God, and you will be my people. He's giving them blessings. But then should the people decide to not uphold their covenant, with the Lord. He warns of increasing levels of consequences in Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 14 and going through 39, including the, uh, those consequences that they would be scattered among the nations. Okay? If they're scattered among the nations, where are they not? They're not in Israel. They're not in the presence of the Lord, right? They're not with him in his presence. He says they're going to rot and perish outside of his presence. So I encourage you to read those warnings. I'm not going to go over them all. But in, in Leviticus 27, then, this is the very last chapter, and then in the early part of Numbers, we're continuing to see God giving additional instruction on how to handle the, the holy tabernacle properly and, and other instructions about being set apart in holiness for God, such as he gives... Uh, laws about the Nazarite vow, right? Um, we see that in the early part of, let me see, we, we're seeing the Nazarite vow there in the early part of Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. <clears throat> now, can, can you guys think of any Nazarites in Scripture? Yep, Samson. Yep, Samson's probably the most well-known. Others, yeah, Zach mentioned somebody else who's, I don't know if it says it explicitly, but it's implied. Samuel was a Nazarite, right? Some, some say that Paul had a, had a temporary Nazarite vow. Samuel was a lifelong Nazarite. Another person they think might have been a lifelong Nazarite was John the Baptist, 
as well. Some, some say that he may have been. Um, now, I don't know, have you guys ever gone through uh, Numbers chapter 6 and like compared how well they followed the Nazarite vow? It's probably easiest to do with Samson since we see the most of his life there in the book of Judges. Uh, not, not so great sometimes, right? <laughs> that he was following that. But right after we see the instructions of the Nazarite, we get to probably the most well-known blessing in all of Scripture here in Numbers chapter 6. And we say this every week here, too. Again, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons. This is in chapter 6, verse 22. Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you are to bless the children of Israel by saying to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and grant you peace. In this way you are to place my name over the children of Israel, and so I will bless them. Now, there's books that have been written about this, sermons that have been spoken. I'm not going to try and cover all of that, but I want to draw out for you what is God saying here about his presence in this chapter or in this, in this section, in this blessing. What is God saying about his presence over you? That he would what? In, that his presence can be imparted onto you, Charlie said. It, it, he is saying that. He is imparting his presence on you in, in, in specific ways. First, he says he's going to barak, which is bless you. And you know how we say baruch, atad, and I, blessed, right? Barak, bless. He's going to barak or bless you. Then he will shamar, if you guys have taken your beginner Hebrew class, shamar means what, kids? Who are bar mitzvah kids? Remember? Nope. How's your Hebrew going? <laughs> shamar is to guard or to keep. Right? Yeah, to guard or to keep. So he's going he's gonna to bless you. He's going to guard you and keep you. And so I'm not sure what you think about having God not just bless you, which by itself is incredible, okay? But also your guard, the one who has both your front and your back and your sides too. What did you say? And the top and the bottom, all around you. That sounds pretty great to me. That sounds like a God that I can be with in his spatial presence. Right, that I can walk with, I can depend on. I like that. And then he says he's gonna make he's not just doing that like some like guard like over you, like hardcore, right? No, he I mean he is, but he's also says that he's gonna make his panim, his face shine on you. Right? And turn his face, his panim toward you. This is that father looking at you with joy and gladness, with delight. I love you. I love being with you. I want to be with you. I'm taking care of you. And, and, and just looking on you with that warmth. He's very present in this blessing. Do you see this? How present God is in this blessing? He's so close. He's granting his peace. He's granting his grace. But this blessing over Israel is not just a blessing. He's pronouncing his name upon the people as well. You see that? In verse 27, in this way they are to place my name over the children of Israel. And so I will bless them. He's calling them by his name. You're my children. 
I'm your father. You're part of my family now. I've adopted you. You were once not a people, but now you're a people. You're my people who dwell with me in my everlasting chesed, in my loving kindness. This is what God's saying. You have my name. You're mine. Do you, do you see that when we walk with that, we know that we have God's name on us? That how, how, how confident you can walk then in the presence and knowing that God has, all, has you all around, that he has, is your blessing, and that, he, that you walk with his name, and that you can walk in confidence in him now in your life. And trusting in Him. That's also a little bit of a warning, right? If you're walking with God's name and you're not representing God so well, right? We want to walk and carry God's name with His glory and represent that well, right? So that is the blessing that God gives in Numbers chapter 6. Now, I told you earlier that they would stay at Mount Sinai until Numbers chapter 10. Numbers 10 is kind of the pivot point, okay? Where the presence of God, he's in the cloud, and then Israel following, they depart from Mount Sinai at this point. They're going towards the promised land. But it wasn't just the cloud that went with them or in front of them. In Numbers chapter 10, verse 33... It says, so they advanced from the mountain of Adonai a trip of three days and the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai going ahead of them for those three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of Adonai was over them by a day when they advanced from the camp. When the Ark would set out, Moses would say, Arise, Adonai, may your enemies be scattered. May those that hate you flee from before you. And then whenever it would rest, he would say, Return, Adonai, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So you have some context there now. We sang that this morning, Let God Arise, in our, our song that we sang during our worship this morning. Let God arise. May your enemies be scattered. May those that hate you flee from before you. We, we say that every time we get the, the scroll out from the ark. We say the same thing. This was said, though, when Israel was on the move. May God arise. May your enemies be scattered from before you. That, that God would protect them, that he would be blessing them in that way, and that the enemies would be scattered so that Israel could go in their appropriate way. So shortly after they left then, God gave more of his presence in a different form. Okay, so what forms have we seen so far? We've seen in Genesis, we saw in person, right? We also saw dreams, okay? We've seen fire, smoke, and earthquake, and his voice as well, right? In his, pre in his presence. And then after they left, in, verse, in chapter 11, he gives a different form. The people are grumbling, and God took some of his ruach, it says, that was on Moses, and he spread it among the 70 elders that were there. 
and says that those elders prophesied in that moment, but not again. And then Moses expressed his desire that God would make all of the people prophets, that they would all have that ruach, that spirit, that presence of the Lord upon them. And I really feel like what Moses was saying is that he was looking forward to that day in which God's spirit would indeed be on all those that follow him, all those that love him. He was, it's sort of a level of prophecy like we see later on in the prophets that say that in the last days, right, that God's spirit will be poured out on all people, right, on all those who are called by his name, as we have now. But they didn't have that then. They didn't have a continuous spreading of the spirit. And Moses, he was the one who had the primary anointing there. And he was still the anointed leader of Israel, even if his own brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, were too foolish to recognize it, as we see in the next chapter. They, they go ahead and speak against Moses. And then others do too, if you go to the next chapter, chapter 13. Again, I'm, I am blazing through this, right? We're just kind of going, doo, doo, skipping along at a high level, going through this. They, they begin to scout the promised land, Okay. They've, they've left Mount Sinai. Not, they're not really that far away. They begin to scout the promise line. What do we say? The, the 10 spies, or the 12 spies went out, right? 10 were bad and 2 were good, right? <laughs> There's the songs about this. You learn as kids. They bring back a bad report, and the people begin to grumble again. And a crisis ensues. And so I want to read about this in, in Numbers chapter 14. Starting in verse 10, it says, But the whole assembly talked about violently stoning them. Okay? This is their grumbling about, about them not going into the land. Right? They're talking about stoning them. Right? Then the glory of Adonai appeared at the tent of meeting to all B'nai Israel. Adonai said to Moses, How long will these people treat me contemptibly? How long will they neglect to trust me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed on, among them? I will strike them with the plague. I will destroy them. But you I will make into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it because you brought, us, brought up this people by your power from among them. They will tell the residents of this land about it. Already they have heard that you, Adonai, are in the midst of this people, and that you, Adonai, have seen that, been seen eye to eye, that your cloud remains over them, and that in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, you go before them. If you kill these people all at once, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, because Adonai was unable to bring this people to the land he had promised them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. So please, let Adonai show his strength, just as you have spoken, saying, Adonai is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Still, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Forgive now the guiltiness of this people in accordance with the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt until now. I read all of that to you because I wanted just to give you an example of Moses pleading with God and, God and 
pleading with God specifically about God's glory in his presence, okay? Because Moses does this again and again and again on behalf of the people of Israel, okay? In this, in this case, he's making the case that God's presence with Israel is known by the other nations, the peoples around this area, in this region, they've heard about God's presence. They, they know what God has done and who he is and how he walks with these people, that they are his special possession, and that if he destroys the people, then other nations will misunderstand and they're going to disparage his name. But yet, I mean, if you're God, what do you want to do with this people? right? This people that's just grumbling constantly, not obeying you, not doing what you want them to do. And you're, I mean, in my human, humanity, I'm like, yeah, I probably would want to get, get rid of them too, right? Like, they're not, they're not doing what I want them to do. They're not learning. They're, they're continuing to rebel against me. But, Mo, but Moses pleads with God and pleads with him according to his glory, pleads with him according to his presence. And God agrees to stay with Israel. He blesses them in that way. But in doing so, he also says, you have 40 years in the wilderness. And the people, they kind of get sad about that. <laughs> they seem to repent a little bit at least, but, and then they decide, maybe God, since we've seemed to repent, maybe God is going to forego said consequence of 40 years in the wilderness, and so they decide they're, they're going to go ahead and go into the land by themselves. But God has not reduced the consequence, the punishment of their sin. He says, I'm still going to go with you, but you're still going to have to deal with this consequence. You're still going to be in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness here. And even if he has forgiven them, they still, have, they still have this. And so if they decide to go into the promised land now, what are they doing? I mean, they're, obviously they're being disobedient, but if God's saying, don't go, I'm here, don't go, you're going to be in the wilderness for a while, and then they decide to go, what are they doing? They're going on their own strength. They're leaving God's presence there. So they did that. What happened to them? They got defeated in battle, like, quick. It was not pretty. They, they saw what happened when they left God's presence. And in Numbers 15, God is like bringing them back. He's giving them additional instructions about approaching God, additional instructions about sacrifice, reminding them about the difference between intentional sin and versus unintentional sin. And then at the end of chapter 15, he gives them a visual reminder of holiness. Some of you have probably seen this one, read this one before, right? The command for the children of Israel to make seat seats on the corners of their garments. It says that, so whenever you look at them, in Numbers 15, 39, you will remember the commands of Adonai and do them and not go spying out after your own hearts and your own eyes, prostituting yourselves. 
This way you will remember and obey all my mitzvot, and you will be holy to your God. I am Adonai your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Adonai your God. You see this repetition <laughs> that he's giving? I've been, I've been going through a book, um, a secular book, um, but, and it's, it's about the art of persuasion. One of the uh, tactics of the art of persuasion is repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. <laughs> when you say it enough, sometimes it starts to sink in. Right? And he's saying enough here to his people, do you understand, I am Adonai your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai your God. Be holy because I am holy. I am Adonai your God. Like, how many times are you going to hear this, right? It's going to sink in that they're going to understand. At least you would think so, right? Except it doesn't happen entirely because you get what happens in the very next chapter of Leviticus or of Numbers, chapter 16. You have the rebellion of Korah. Like, seriously, guys. <laughs> right? They get their sentence of 40 years in the wilderness. They, they see what happens when they try and go without God. And they're still like, I don't get it, right? <laughs> so there's a few of them. that it, It's not the, just that they didn't get it. They didn't get it, but they want more. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they rebel against Moses and Aaron. Okay? These are Levites, right? Who are rebelling. Levites. Not just anybody from any of the tribes, but Levites that are rebelling. And I love what Moses responds to them. In chapter 16, they say you've gone too far. That's in verse 3. Moses fell on his face there. And he says, In the morning the Lord will reveal who is his and who is holy. Okay? He talks about them about putting fire and incense in the presence of Adonai. But he says in verse 8, Listen now, you sons of Levi. Verse 9, Isn't it enough that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel to bring you near to him to do the work of the tabernacle of Adonai and to stand before the community to minister to them? So he brought you close, along with all your fellow sons of Levi. But you're seeking the priesthood too. Moses appeals to the fact to them. He says, God's already brought you close to his presence. He already has. Why are you, why are you doing this? You've already been set apart. This, this holiness, you've been made holy. You've already been set apart. Yet Korah wants more. He wants the priesthood. He wants to be able to go into the tabernacle. But the problem here is that it's not out of a sense of wanting to be closer to God in the sense of loving the Father. He's not, he's not doing so out of a desire to just dwell in the presence of Adonai. It seems to be that he's doing so in a prideful power grab. He, he's, he has ulterior motives. And Moses then goes to God and says, don't accept their offering. And he uses a different word for offering than we talked about earlier. He uses the word mincha, which 
is different from karab, but it still carries the same general meaning of an offering, which is this intent to draw close to Adonai. And Moses draws out the challenge, and he says that you are to bring censers of Adonai before the Lord. Leipne Adonai, again, we see this again throughout here, bringing censers before the Lord. And I have to think here, like, Korah doesn't remember what happened with Nadab and Abihu, right? <laughs> like, like, I don't know, maybe he does, but he does not fully understand God's holiness. Like, they cannot approach God's holiness with their prideful intent in their heart. And what do we see happen there? Right? We see God's holiness. His glory appears before the people, just like when the spies, the issue with the spies occurred, and Dora, or Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they're swallowed up by the earth. And those holding the censers, they're consumed by God's holiness, by His holy fire. They are consumed. That you cannot approach Adonai. There, I mean, we're seeing this again and again and again. You, we cannot approach the Lord in his spatial presence, in a state of unholiness. And so, again, going back to what Yeshua has done for us, thinking about that, just the fact that we can approach the Lord, that he has given us access by his blood, that any one of us should be considered holy, is incredible. It's, it, it is incredible to me. Like, I, I can't even fathom it that I should be able, able to be considered holy. But I am by the blood of Yeshua. Praise the Lord that I am. The crazy thing is here in Numbers is that the people all saw this and instead of fearing the Lord, they grumbled more and they said, you killed Adonai's people. In Numbers 16.41. He said, you killed Adonai's people. And God was about to wipe them all out again. And Moses interceded for them again. And he sent Aaron with his censer, from the, with fire from the altar. Right? This altar that is holy before the Lord because God's presence made it holy. And he took this and he went among the people and stood between the dead and the living, it says. Because God had sent a plague among the people and killed nearly 15,000 of them already. It seems like the, the people did not really grasp this idea of God's holiness and how the priesthood is set apart. And how the Levites are set apart at one level. The priesthood is set apart at another level. That God set apart this group, Aaron and his sons, that they're going to minister to the Lord in the tabernacle. And they don't, it seems like they don't even get it still because at the end of chapter 17, after the, after the sprouting of Aaron's rod, they said, but the children of Israel said to Moses saying, look, we will die. We are all lost. We are all lost. Anyone approaching the tabernacle of Adonai will die. Must all of us die? And so they, they saw this holiness, this dangerous holiness of God in these repeated episodes, but they didn't quite understand, I think, the role that God was setting up with the priesthood and how this was pointing forward to Mashiach, who would be their atonement. And so God responds in chapter 18 by outlining the, the priestly duties, chapter 19, the ordinance of the red heifer, 
and the cleansing water. So he's giving them more instruction about this, more understanding about this priesthood, about how they are ministering with his presence, that his presence can dwell among the people according to the way he has given them instruction to do so, according to his holiness. But even even Aaron and Moses, they still had to learn a lesson in chapter 20 about God's holiness because instead of speaking to the rock as as God had commanded, they struck it. And so even they didn't quite fully understand it, fully grasp the direction of God to obey his commandments explicitly. So we get to chapter 20. There's only a few chapters left in the book of Numbers. About 16. Goes to Numbers 36. The Israelites are nearing the end of their 40-year journey. Okay, We've just blazed through 40 years right here. <laughs> 40 years of history in 15 minutes. They came to the plain of Jordan across, across from Jericho. There's a huge number of them. Huge number of them. Millions. Okay, Aaron dies. They have the snake incident, but I want to focus on chapters 22, 23, and 24. Um, <clears throat> Balaam and, and uh, the, the intended cursings that are turned into blessings, right? There's a huge number of them. And Balak, the Midianites, they see them all. They're scared, right? And Balak tries to hire Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22. But my question for you is, as I was reading through this, I, I, asked a, I thought about a question that I don't think I'd ever question before about, about God. <laughs> it's, how can one curse the very presence of the Lord? Like in a spiritual sense, right? Balak is trying to hire Balaam to do something in the spiritual world, right? That God controls in the sense of blessings and curses. And he wants him to curse himself. Like basically ask God to curse himself, his very presence. And, you know, some people question like, is there anything that God can't do? Well, I would say that God cannot curse himself. It can't be done. If he's dwelling among this people that he has made holy, they cannot be cursed. Well, he's there in his presence. His presence is there. So three times, Balak tried to have Balaam curse Israel. Three times, God blessed them. Because he can bless himself and the people that he's with. But he cannot be cursed. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. Charlie asked if the three-time blessing could coordinate to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I mean, we see three a lot in Scripture. I don't know that it always corresponds directly to that. But he does bless them three times, increasingly each time, to the point we get to the blessing about, I mean, the significant blessing 
both in verse in chapter 23 and in chapter 24 just i mean significant long long blessing that he goes he goes over them but we get to then to 25 and we see this new approach that was taken by Balak where the there is it's the Mo, it's called the Moabite seduction <clears throat> where there is women from Moab the Midianites the Midianite women there who are coming into the camp and they are engaging the Israelite men or what is happening here is that they're engaging in worship with the false gods of Baal right there in the camp okay with these women in in these are sexual fertility rites that's what's happening there in this worship of false gods of Baal and so the priests begin striking down the Israelites who are engaged in the sin and all the people are gathered at the tent of meeting they're weeping before the Lord and in verse 6 it says behold a man from the children of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his brothers before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Adonai while they're weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting right in front of the assembly right there at the tabernacle he goes into the tent okay it's the tent it's not just a tent he goes into the tent where's everybody at the tabernacle he goes into the tent and begins to perform the sexual fertility ritual to a false god right there in the tent of the real holy god why do you think phineas goes after him right you can't do that he's so zealous for his god that he takes the spear and goes through them simultaneously stops the plague that had erupted from god's holy presence being violated by that sin god then makes a covenant with phineas because of his zealousness he says that he will have the priesthood forever continuing again to relate his relational presence with covenant i just love how we're how so much god is giving his relational presence here getting closer to the end of the book of numbers and we'll wrap up here shortly i want to talk about joshua just for a minute though <clears throat> even though god has made a covenant with with phineas right there earlier in the in the exodus he made the covenant with all of the people he also had anointed moses as the leader of the of these people though and moses recognizes that this is important to have a man filled with the holy spirit to help lead the people and so in numbers chapter 27 it says moses spoke to adonai saying <clears throat> may adonai god of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over the community to go out and come in before them who will lead them out and bring them out so that the people of Adonai will not be like a sheep without a shepherd Adonai said to Moses take Joshua son of Nun a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand upon him you will have him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly and commission him before their eyes give to him some of your authority so that the whole community of the children of Israel will obey him he will stand before Eleazar the Kohen who will pray and obtain judgments for him by the Urim and before Adonai 
At his mouth they will go out, and at his mouth they will come in, he and all the community of the children of Israel with him. So Moses went and did those things. Joshua, the son of Nun, he's anointed by the Spirit, by the presence of Adonai to live within him. He's anointed to lead the people with Eliezer the priest. These people who dwell in the presence of Adonai, we see this, this anointing of Joshua, which I love there. And then we have this transition point there. And Moses is like, okay, we've anointed a new leader, and we're kind of getting to this transition point where the rest of Numbers and like the entire book of Deuteronomy is now Moses saying, okay, you know who your new leader is going to be. We're right outside the promised land. Now here's what you need to know, okay? Just remember who you are. This is the second generation of Israelites to leave Egypt, okay? These are, not the, these are the kids of the people who came out of Egypt. They might have been little kids when they came out, but you, we've gone 40 years since then. So if they, were, if they were five, they're now 45, older than me. Okay? It's been a while. <laughs> right? It's been a while since they've, since they've left. Okay? And you've got new, a new generation, right? This, the people who were kids when they came out now have kids of their own. And Moses is saying, hey, you guys, you second generation, here's what you need to know. These are all the instructions that the Lord has given. This is what he's done for you. This is how a holy God is dwelling among us. He's starting to give them reminders, and he starts by giving them reminders of Leviticus 23 about the holy days of the Lord. And then he does something else after this. In, in chapter <clears throat> so 28 and 29, he gives them those reminders. In chapter 31, then he goes and has them take vengeance on the people of Midian. Okay, the people that just, just before this, right, they had sinned, the, the people had sinned against the Lord by bringing the women from Midian into the camp. And now they're going to take vengeance. And what I find awesome about this is that the, first of all, is that the priest went with them, right? <clears throat> that the Lord went with them. It says that, they, that as they took vengeance on them, that they, they were sent into battle, and with them, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the Cohen, who took with him articles from the sanctuary and trumpets for signaling. Okay, so the, the priest went with them. God was going with them. His presence was there. And the Israelites, they were significantly outnumbered. And they destroyed the entire army. And they did not lose a single man, it says. Not one was missing. Numbers chapter 32, verse 49. Your servants have counted the heads of the men of war under our command, and not one is missing. The Lord, in his presence, went with them. That doesn't happen in normal warfare. <laughs> not at all. Not one was missing. Not when you're outnumbered four or five to one. And you go and destroy the entire army and not one of your men is missing. Incredible. Finally, as we're nearing the end of Numbers, God's given instructions about setting up the inheritance of the promised land with the tribes, including provisioning for the Levites who would be maintaining and serving the dwelling place of the Lord. And we happen to then be here where our Torah portion is today. So just a very short word about our Torah portion. Loved our Torah study this morning, what we were talking about. Uh, in, in, in Numbers chapter 32, 
there, you have a couple of tribes that want to settle on the east side of the Jordan River, which is pretty interesting, Gad and Reuben, because at the outset what I'm seeing is they're saying, we're going to stay here, y'all are going to go into the promised land, and what I don't think that they're quite thinking about in their initial quest is that they're asking to dwell outside God's promised land, outside of his presence. They don't, I don't think they grasp what they're asking for. And, if, and we talked about this in Torah study this morning, and so if you, as you read through Numbers 32, and then you kind of see the conclusion in Joshua chapter 22, you see this, they, they, it seems like they're evolving and learning, like Moses is like, no, you know, you kind of got your priorities out of order here, and while God still allows them to do this, by the end of Numbers 32, and specifically in Joshua 22, we see that it seems that they have grasped this idea that the importance of the presence of Adonai. And that's why they built that altar at the end of Joshua 22 at the Jordan River that almost started the Civil War, but thankfully that they were able to um, give some understanding about what it was for. So, let's wrap up Numbers. Leviticus Numbers. Whew! How fast have you read two books of the Bible? <laughs> We've gone through two books of Torah this morning. <clears throat> We've highlighted the ways in which God's relational presence was revealed to, active among Israel. They finished their year at Mount Sinai. They wandered in the wilderness. God himself, remember, he foretold that, like, I can't go with you, people. You are so stiff-necked. I cannot go with you, right? He nearly did destroy them multiple times. Constantly they were rebelling, grumbling, and blatantly sinning in his presence, yet God continued to go with them. He blessed them. He shined his face upon them. He prospered them in war. He brought them to the edge of the promised land where we're going to leave off today. Next week I'm going to preach, but I'm going to not preach in this series. I'm going to pick this up in a few weeks. Um, but we're going to talk about Deuteronomy and continue to draw out what God has done, and how he's setting himself up as the God who wants to dwell with his people, who wants to have relational presence with them. So I hope you're enjoying kind of seeing these nuggets and how God is, is setting himself up to live with his people, to dwell, and how he wants to live with us too. So we're going to stop there today. So if I could get a couple people to take the kiddish table here and bring it forward. And we will all join in the Kiddush blessings together. You guys make me really nervous carrying this with the juice and the bread. <laughs> all right. Why don't everybody come forward and grab a cup of juice and a piece of challah bread? <laughs>